when he was when he was singing for Melissa and Josh and the folks, to, they always um, have singers sing for them, just kind of know where they fit in. And and when they when he first opened up his head and started singing, I think it was Josh on the keyboard. He went straight to uh, just a small town boy living in a lonely world. And Jack went up, and we have our own Steve Perry. So Steve Perry, full of the Holy Ghost, we used to say. That was really good. Um, I, I, I say this all the time, but we really are, we just need to be careful not to get spoiled to the level of music that happens here. You know, I've got pastor friends in Boise and Topeka and Wichita that have churches three times as big and they can't find a piano player. And we got 30 kids waiting the tables at Carabas that can just sing the lights out. And I'm not saying Jack doesn't wait tables at Carabas. Not that there's anything wrong with waiting tables at Carabas. But anyway, I'm getting, that, that was, that's a... That, that's not where I was wanting to go with this. What I was wanting to say is we are fortunate. And, and I hope that we never just become connoisseurs of a service. Because when you get in this kind of talent, you can just kind of sit back if you're not careful. And, and, almost, and, and even the better it gets, develop a critical spirit. And just turn into like bon vivants of good church music. As opposed to really pressing in and letting it open up our hearts. So we're blessed people and we should be careful and grateful for that blessing. We also are a blessed people to be honoring our new council members, our new leadership council members today. Every year at Grace Point as a congregation, we go through a process that ends up in us electing new members to our church leadership council. And this group, our leadership council, we call it the leadership council because it was a merger over the last year of our elders and our church board. Many of you come from a background where there was a strong church board of trustees that oversee fiscal things. A lot of you come from a background where there was a strong elder polity where the elders were essentially the spiritual leaders of the church. And so we had both of those groups represented and it became very clear to us that those two groups um, were doing wonderful work, but they were doing work on the same issues. And it became more and more clear to us that there really isn't a sacred spiritual side of the church and a physical side of the church. Um, bless you. The physical side of the church, uh, the physical side of the church um, is spiritual. And so we had these two groups that the staff was working with, the congregation was working with, and it just, through a process, it felt like the wise thing to do to bring those two groups together. And in doing that, we now have this wonderful thing called a leadership council. Um, this group is a representative body, uh, a body that represents you as a congregation and, of course, also represents the staff. And I, I don't mean to be grandiose in this, but they also represent God in overseeing the life of our congregation. It is very important in a congregation. Uh, congregations are classically, of course, led by clergy, professional people who do this and are called pastors or ministers or clerics. But it is very important for a congregation to have not only a system of checks and balances, but also a system of strength and support and love that comes from a lay representation. And lay people bring a level of insight a particular perspective to church work and church life that is incredibly helpful and it's actually indispensable. Ministers do their best not to cordon themselves off to ivory towers or to distance themselves from the life of the laity because in a lot of ways we are just that ourselves. But ministers, clergy do develop blind spots. There's no way that they can't. And to have a representative voice from the congregation bring that perspective again is incredibly indispensable. So this is a wonderful system for us. Our council meets regularly, monthly, in a big meeting that covers a lot of important stuff. But our council also give themselves sacrificially, as many of them as can, and meet with the staff every week on Tuesday afternoon. And that's always kind of a prayerful time for just the bearing of burdens and hearts and visions and and so they do tons and tons of work and there's no way that the four coming in could know all that they're going to do but I think they will find that this will be an incredibly gratifying experience a blessed experience working with our staff working with you guys and um, really representing the church holistically so please know who our council members are 
these are people that you can go to for anything. These are, um, you, we could come from a biblical sense, but if you're looking at it from a governmental sense, these are your house of commons and lords. These are your representatives and senators. These are the people that you send, not to Washington, but to the clergy and to the altar uh, to really allow us to hear your hearts and to serve you better. So to that end, I would like for our present council members to come and join me on the platform and just stand with me. Would you guys come, Carol, Pam, David, Carol, Van? This is a wonderful group of people that I've had the privilege of serving with for the last several years. And so many stories here of love and guidance and wisdom. But we appreciate these, and I think before we bring the uh, new folk up, I think we should tell them how much we appreciate them. Would you do that? And now I would love um, if you guys would stand on the floor for our four Don Skulls. Kathy Gilliland, Steve Hartman, and Tara Hamilton. Would you guys stand just kind of across the front there? And That's nice, two and two. These folk were recommended by you, along with another 18 to 20 people who were undeniably qualified and perhaps will serve, I'm sure will serve in other capacities in a different time, even on this council. Our present council, along with the staff, worked diligently looking at these names. One of the things that was most heartening to me when the calls were made to these four who actually were voted on um, to become new council members here, one of the things that was really heartening to me was that to a person, all four of them were surprised. All four of them literally and genuinely said, me? And it reminded me of the story, Lee, of the young man Moses who flexed his muscles one day and looked at God and said, I'm your man, you need me. And that resulted in a debacle of epic proportions. And it also resulted in him going away and spending 40 years on the backside of a desert to build not just a biological life but a character and maturity. At the end of that 40 years, it was not Moses who came to God flexing his muscles and saying, you and me, let's take this thing. It was God that came to Moses in a burning bush and made an overture to that man that I would like to use you. And what is incredibly compelling about that story is that when God finally came to Moses and said, I'm ready to take you up on your offer, I would like to use you. Moses stepped back and said, me? You can use me? This was not self-loathing or unnecessary self-deprecation. This was insight and perspective and sageness that only comes with the passing of time and years. And it is amazing to me that when Moses thought he was usable and indispensable, he wasn't. And when Moses thought that most of what he had to offer was well-nigh spent and he had little left, he was incredibly useful in the hands of God. And I did not have any sense that these were people that lacked confidence or lacked giftings, but I was deeply moved at their humility and coming to this post, and it was genuine and sincere to watch them back up and say, me? And as a congregation, we just want to say to Kathy and to Don and to Tara and to Steve, yes, you. You, by your lives, by your love, have truly, in the best sense of the word, earned this position. And this position you know full well is not a position of power. When church leaders begin to parse and dissect where authority lies, that church is well nigh spent. Because all of us know that ultimately it is not technical authority that leads any institution. It is raw, true, and deserved influence.
And these people without office, these people without title, have earned through their strength of character and commitment, they have earned influence. And it is to that end that we bless them as they will bless us. I would love for us, um, particularly our present council members, if you would go down and if you would lay hands on these, and I would love for the rest of the congregation to stand and to stretch your hands out to them. And if that's uncomfortable for you, stretch your heart out to them. And anybody who feels like it as a member of this congregation, I think it would be appropriate for you just to step forward and just move in here. And if you feel like joining them, just, yeah, just gather around. Thank you, Lee. And as others come just to lay their hands, let's close our eyes with our hearts and arms extended. And pray a specific prayer not of induction to a high office but of reception of a towel by the hands of Jesus let those Jesus said who want to be greatest among you or most effective among you let them first gird themselves with a towel and find themselves at the feet of the saints we lift these servants we lift these servants with all the authority that we can defer to them as a congregation. We lift them on the grounds of that authority, but we honor them through the beauty of their influence, through the beauty of their character, the beauty of their hearts. We lift them to you, God. And we pray for Don Skulls, Kathy Gilliland, for Steve Hartman, for Tara Hamilton. We pray, as your brother James led us to pray, if anyone lacks wisdom, let them ask of God. We ask of God for wisdom. They are entering into a life of service in our congregation, O oh God, at a critical time. As we face, as we tow the threshold of relocation, re-identification, as we stand on the precipice of perhaps our greatest work, surely our greatest need. May you endow these with strength. May you bless their families to undergird them, to be understanding as they give themselves to this office. Bless their families, bless them, grant wisdom, we pray, to not only them, but again to all of our leadership council. We receive them now into our hearts, we accept their love, we pray for their wisdom, and we thank you, God, for their lives. For all of this, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, may this be so. And God's people said, Amen. Would you welcome these four to our leadership council? One of our, uh, Carol was telling me to remind you, we also have one other council member who's not here, Mary Gist. And Mary is actually the facilitator of our council. She's out. Um, Mary's an incredible person. I talked to her a long time yesterday, just seeking some wisdom and collaborating on stuff, but she and Jody are out. And uh, Mary and Jody are precious people in our church. So you're, you're a very fortunate people to have these representing you. Three questions from the wisdom of Jesus. Three questions that are helping us in this Paschal season of reflection. When the church focuses on the beauty of that archetype of life and death and burial and resurrection. Three questions that we're spending this Lenten season really focusing on and reflecting on and trying to dig deep into our own hearts and understand more about ourselves through the lens of these questions. 
The first question was offered two weeks ago, and that is a question from the mouth of Jesus to a man who had been ill for 38 years and was lying at a pool that particularly was believed to have physical uh, healing traits. Uh, Jesus came to that man. I won't rehearse the sermon in complete, but Jesus looked at this man and Jesus asked him the question, do you want to be well? And so we spent a couple of weeks ago just talking through, I, I think, the well-understood fact that the desire to be well, to be spiritually, emotionally, psychologically, physically, holistically well as a human being, that desire cannot be presumed. There is a particular strain of unwellness that can even lead us to an ultimate blind spot of soul where we develop identities as unhealthy people, identities as unwell people, where, where our, our, um, our biosystem, our spirit's biosystem literally functions best when we are not at our best. And Jesus understood that and so Jesus proposed not a perfunctory question but a really cutting, incisive question when he looked at this man who had been lying there for 38 years perhaps in what could have been an ostensible effort to get well or a real effort to get well, Jesus did not presume to know. Jesus looked at him and asked him first, do you want to be well? And that was a good week that we spent talking about that. It's a good question. The second week, which was last week, we asked the question, assuming a good answer to the first or an affirmative answer to the first, we asked the second question, do you believe you can be well? And this also is from the pedagogy, the teaching style, uh, the heart of Jesus' ministry, Jesus often asked people if they believed. He, in many occasions, and I could list several of them off the top of my head, would ask people, do you really think it's possible for you? I know you want to be well, but do you believe there is a capacity here for you to be well? Now. These circumstances that Jesus found himself in were expressly physical. But I, I think the wisdom of Scripture and the wisdom of Jesus' teaching is to take this immediate context of physical healing and to enlarge it to a healing of broader proportions, a healing that may not be physical but could be psychological or spiritual or emotional. And I think it's a very legitimate question to ask. And we, we looked at it extensively last week. Do you believe you have the capacity to be well? Do you understand that you were created uh, by God in God's image, Scripture said? Do you realize that you're made of, that you're made of the substance of God? And within every human being, there is a capacity to move in the direction of wellness. Not all at the same pace, not all with the same ultimate definition. But do you believe? And I think the inference of Jesus always was that he deeply believed, but he wanted to know if the person believed. Because no sage, no teacher, no parent, no therapist, no pastor, no one can believe for you. And, and it was a searching time last week for us to look inside our own hearts and ask ourselves, do I have the capacity for this? Am I, am I capped out? Am I topped out? And so we talked about the question, do you believe you can be well? This week, also from the teaching of Jesus, is a question, um, and I don't, he didn't form it exactly this way, but so much of what he did formed this without words. And that third question is, what part do you play in being well? And I think looking at the ministry of Jesus, there, he gives us a wonderful type for this. Again, don't, don't cap it or constrain it in the immediate context of physical healing because I think Jesus is giving us a far broader, wiser picture than that. But, but Jesus often, when he, would, when he would work with someone and move them toward wholeness or wellness, Jesus... And I, I don't think this was happenstance, and I don't think it was a throwaway, and I, I think the wisdom of Scripture um, is seen. Uh, scripture, in its wisdom, never just puts something in that's unnecessary. 
Often when Jesus would heal someone or move them toward wellness, he would give them some responsibility in that process. You remember the interesting story where he, he spit one day. It's just the grossest thing in the world if you think about it. He spit in dirt and, um, and made a little mud pack. And I've always thought it's interesting. If he would have wanted to, I suppose he could have looked at the guy and just healed him of his blindness. But instead there was this process, this dramatic process that I have to believe has some meaning, not just for the guy, but probably even for us if we really understand how to read scripture. He, he spit and he made these little mud packs and he put them on the guy's eyes. And he told the guy that there was a pool. A lot of healings happened at water and pools, thus the idea of baptism and why water is such a central piece of a Christian faith and a lot of religions. But Jesus told him to go and wash in the pool. And until he did his part, the part that Jesus had played would be ineffective. And, and I, I think the picture there, and I could tell three or four more stories that are very similar to that. But I think the point is that Jesus was trying to empower the human being to recognize that they had a part they had a role to play in showing up. There was something that they could do to bring themselves to wellness. Now, I want to remind you for, for our perspective today and our understanding, the definition or the description of wellness that I gave last week is more dispositional as opposed to positional. It's more about where our hearts are. And I described wellness last week and it was received well and I had a lot of affirmation in this, so I think it resonates. By wellness, I'm not telling the person who is three generations deep in alcoholism or substance abuse, familial substance abuse, that person who's been fighting sobriety and has been to rehab the fourth time and has lost so much and is struggling even today with the gravitational pull. You know, we really cannot weigh the gravitational pull that exerts itself on each of us. That's why I love Hebrews 12, when the writer said, you know what we should do? We should lay aside the weights and the sin that does so easily beset us. Did you know the sin that easily besets me may not be the one that easily besets you? You may look at me and say, what's wrong with you? Why, why do you yield to that? How do you, I mean, I, I, don't, I think I was 32 years old before I drank anything besides grape juice and let it ruin. That's the way I am with liquor. So I, I don't come from a family. We were teetotalers, brother. I mean, we just were teetotalers. So I never developed a taste. And consequently, as I wrestled with my own soul's issues, that particular thing, liquid spirits, never became the crutch that I leaned on. No, I had mine. And the insidious thing about such and our addictions and those things that we see one day. He said, you know, actually the publicans who wrestle with grievable temptation to abuse their body and sell their souls uh, through the selling of their body. Jesus said to some degree, and, and I don't think he meant this cruelly, he said to, to some degree they have an advantage over you. This isn't about going to heaven and hell. This is about moving into a place of wholeness that he described as the kingdom of God, the world in which God lives and we live with God peacefully. Jesus said publicans and harlots enter that kingdom ahead, he said, of some of you, the Pharisees, the religious folk. Now, why is that? Is it because inherently those who... Often we have Jesus positioned as one who so castigated the religious elite that he hated them. Listen to me. He loved them and saw them as desperately needy, just as much as he loved the publicans and the harlots and the tax collectors. He even said to the religious elite that they would have a more difficult time entering into wholeness, entering into the kingdom. Because the temptations and the possible addictions they could develop were of such a religious nature that they were easily cloaked. And not only would you not see that this is an addiction that's devastating you, you might even see it as a piece of benevolence or altruism or philanthropy and goodness on your life. But he said, 
some people have, Father Martin, one of the great leaders in the 12-step movement in the AA world, Father Martin wrote a book, this wonderful Catholic priest who was really just a, a godfather in that movement. Father Martin wrote a book and he captured this. The title of the book was Blessed Are the Addicts. Blessed are the addicts. And he, he came from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who bankrupt early and hard. Blessed are those whose sins and brokenness and, and obstacles to wellness. Blessed are those. Blessed are the harlots and the publicans and the tax collectors and the drunks, Jesus said, because they get it early and hard. And as miserable as rock bottom can be for them, there's no missing it. But boy, the insidious stuff of church and family, the insidious stuff of giving and codependence and developing self-worth through religious altruistic means, that stuff, Jesus said, can be incredibly dangerous. So wellness... My friend who has gone, he drives by a liquor store. Not today because it's Sunday in Tennessee, but tomorrow when he drives by a liquor store. Pam, he said literally he shakes. Sometimes he feels like his wheels are out of balance. To look at that person and say, in terms of his relationship with alcohol and wellness, that the algorithm for him is exactly the same as the algorithm for me, is foolhardy. We cannot measure the weight of temptation and difficulty that each of us feel. None of us have an LED meter on our brow that gives us the right to have this universal definition of wellness, wholeness, and spiritual desire and commitment to where we have the right to judge one another. That is why, of all of the spiritual dispositions, perhaps there is no greater disposition than the gift of mercy that is simply practically everything else indicates otherwise. And I will say this, there is danger in giving the benefit of the doubt to an extreme. But I will tell you, the danger of developing a cynical, judgmental spirit toward people is far more devastating than any pain you will ever endure from giving the benefit of the doubt and trying to believe the best. Disposition of wellness is simply, first, a willingness to show up. It is secondly, a willingness to be aware when enlightenment comes. When you become enlightened to, through your soul, and everybody in this room has fault lines, fissures, that when the tectonic shifts happen in your life, this is where the earthquake takes place. This is the sin that does so easily beset you, maybe not your neighbor. The willingness to show up and be aware. To be able to see myself in a mirror. James, I mentioned a moment ago, James, uh, the writer of the epistle, said that, that community, the spirit of God, the kingdom of God is like a mirror. And, and, and it's, one, it's, not, it's not one of those mirrors, you know, in, in the mall that trim you. And it's not one of those mirrors where the lighting's just right and you look in it and you're like, mm, go get them, tiger. It's one of those cosmetic mirrors. You know those? With the lights and magnify that you look into and you're like, oh my God. Do I really look like that? It's one of those mirrors that doesn't Photoshop you. James said, community like this can be a mirror. And James said, if you're only a hearer of the word and you're not a doer, and the word isn't something just written down in scripture, the word is the word that has come to you, that word that's provoking you toward wellness. He said, if all you ever do is hear it, but you don't do something, he said, you're like a person who comes to the mirror, sees themselves, and for whatever reason cannot bear what they see. 
And there are two directions to go when we come to that mirror. One direction is to become haughty and self-righteous and say, it's not true. That mirror is lying. Or to look in the mirror and not admit to ourselves what we're seeing there. And because really, the people around you, the closest people to you, they are a mirror for you. They are, your children are reflecting back to you. Your relationships are reflecting back to you. If you continue to get the same thing out of relationships, they are serving you as a mirror. And, and, and you, can, you can go the route of self-righteousness and disagree with the mirror, argue with the mirror, and then develop smoke and mirrors and build your own mirror to cast a highly edited version of yourself, not just to everybody else, but even to yourself. There's another way to go for a lot of us raised in religious backgrounds that perhaps is more insidious than the self-righteous one. And Rachel, that one, a lot of us know. That one is to see what we see. And, and to the opposite extreme of self-righteousness, to enter into despair. To enter into self-loathing. To look at ourselves and say, there is nothing that can be done. Now, very few people carry that perspective on themselves overtly. A lot of self-righteous people are actually self-loathing people. A lot of that highly edited, avoidant, self-righteous self-righteousness that we see in so many of us really is just the flip side, the safer representation of self-loathing and a despair that says, I really, I really give up on myself. I don't think I can be better. I think I'm the way I am and I think somewhere something broke. Whether it was my genetics or my choices The kingdom of God is a mirror. And what I talked about last week was this beautiful possibility that a congregation like this, a community like this, whether it's meal groups or book clubs or, or deep relationships or a relationship with a therapist or a small group or whatever it is, it offers us the possibility to see ourselves. And wellness means that when I see myself, I avoid the extremes of narcissism because narcissism rests in all of us. Narcissism is rooted in it is rooted in a scarcity mentality, it is rooted deep in our lizard brain that drives us to survive, that sees the world scarce and the world as a war zone that we have to fight dog eat dog in. That is at the heart of all of us. There is in the root of our brain still that, that very real go-to. And narcissism can manifest by a severe taking advantage of others, a severe unwillingness to see our own faults. But listen to me, in its own way, self-loathing and despair is a form of narcissism. Because it is still so entirely self-focused. It is still so entirely unwilling to see outside of the space of my own life. But somewhere between self-loathing narcissism and self-righteous narcissism, there is a wellness of awareness that is full of self-compassion but also full of self-empowerment and responsibility that says, I will accept what I see because I believe it is never too late this is a kingdom of second chances and third chances and fourth chances. And for the person who's getting out of their 11th rehab and is still trembling as they pass by, there is hope that springs eternal in the kingdom of God that says somewhere between self-loathing and self-righteousness, we believe in you that life is not over and it can be better. You are made in the image of God. And no matter how many layers of dirt are over those strains of gold, there is gold in them, their mountains. 
And you need to find you a group of people to be around who are not gold diggers, but they are gold miners. And there's a big difference. Because gold diggers will get everything they can get out of you and use you. But gold miners are those people who commit with faces smudged and arms and backs tired and pickaxes of spirit in hand. They believe no matter how many tons of dirt and rock and shale they got to dig through, they believe down inside that you are made of gold. Anna called it stardust. Scripture calls it the image of God. I've been thinking, I dreamed about it the other night. I've been thinking about a biblical story about personal responsibility and I was even looking this morning, I was thinking about the 12-step world and I, I've said many times, quoting an old friend of mine, Dave Foster, who used to pastor out in Bellevue and has recently passed away and shocked all of us when Dave died. But Dave, I heard do a series one time on the 12 steps and he said, listen, he was talking to the church. He said, you may not like me doing a series on the 12 steps, but he said, it's all our stuff. He was talking to Christians. This is our stuff. They stole our stuff, but we weren't using it, so somebody ought to. <laughs> I like that. But I thought about this, Steve. It, you know, some of you will never go to a 12-step, and that's fine. It's not the only place to get healthy, and this isn't the only way to articulate health. But just, I was thinking about it in the context of this story that I'm going to tell you in just a minute. But we admitted we were powerless. A lot of people don't like that. The reality is the ability to admit you are powerless over whatever the issue is may be your greatest power yet. It's called humility. And so it is a tongue-in-cheek admission of powerlessness that says, I cannot do this alone, and I cannot fight this alone. I need a context, and I need some gold miners, and I need help. So as soon as you say, I am powerless, you may be more powerful than you've ever been, especially if you mean it. Life had become unmanageable. It's called rock bottom. It's the prodigal that gets out there and says, my God, I can't even eat the pig food. My boss thinks I'm stealing if I eat the slop that I'm supposed to feed the pigs. It's called rock bottom. And he said, I want to go home. You know what's amazing about many of our journeys? And maybe you've been there. Maybe you've had a family member. It is astonishing how far down rock bottom has to get for some of us, isn't it? How many people have you seen blow through multiple rock bottoms when you thought, surely this is going to be it? That's one of the things I like about the soul-refining promise made of many religions and particularly Christianity that get done what you can get done in this life. It is not over. My friend that called me a few years ago and Stan, I just need to know something. He said, um, if I commit suicide, will I go to hell? And I said, well, I don't want to play word games with you because you're obviously serious. Number one, I, I, I don't believe in the hell that you're talking about. And if you're asking me, do I believe that if you kill yourself, that you're going to wake up and be eternally tortured by God with the demons forever. No, I, I, I don't. But I, I do think I believe in hell because you are obviously living in it. To be at this place in your life, and some of you have been there and some of you are there today, where it's not that you want to die, but it's that you just don't want to live. And when you hear people say that it's selfish, you, you real, realize that they really don't get it because you don't think you're being selfish at all because all you think you've become is a burden, not just to yourself, but to others. I remember him asking me that question and I said, I know you're already there. And here's what I want to say to you. I really feel like that prerogative you should defer to God and God should be the one who decides when we come and when we go. But if you take that prerogative out of your pain, I'm going to do my best to understand. 
But what I want you to know is this binary, this highly mythological picture of you live 30 or 40 or 60 or 80 or 100 years here and then everything you've done here somehow determines infinity and eternity for you and you either live in eternal Beverly Hills mansion or tortured and eaten by worms. I think the reality of that early religious mythology was pointing to something but it wasn't capturing it. And what I want to say to you is this is a soul-making universe and for whatever reason your soul is desperately hurting. You are in a crucible and I don't know exactly what happens on the other side. And, and, and addendum here, one week to the day he took his life. And don't think I didn't go back and, you know, think. But I told him, and I think I told him right, and I still stand by it years later. Just know this, that you've got soul work to do. Your soul has an agenda. It came from somewhere, it's going somewhere, and I don't think biological cessation terminates this soul work. And if the relief you need is to take your life here, I, I think there's a possibility you're going to be disappointed with the effect because I don't think you're going to wake up in the judgmental hand of God, but I think you're going to wake up in the lap of a God who looks at you and says, did you really think you could get out of it that easy? And he will pick you up on the other side and in the next life you will have the work to continue because there are some things you can't get out of in this soul making process. So for those my friends and loved ones who've made that decision, I get it or I don't get it. I've never felt that. But as they say in the Upward Bound community, if you can't get out of it, get into it. And this process of being conformed into the image of his son, the firstborn among many brothers and sisters, that whatever you call it, this Christ-making universe, this soul-making process that we try in every way through addiction and avoidance to escape, through self-righteousness and arrogance to escape, there is a mirror, there is an agenda your soul has and you're not going to be able to get out of it. So you might as well get into it. Now, how we go about getting into it, how we go about the process, I mean, I, I think about the steps to admit my life is unmanageable, to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity, to make a decision to turn my life over to the care of that one, Oh, to make a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves, to face it down, to admit to God, ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs, to be entirely ready to have God remove these defects of character, to humbly ask God to remove our shortcomings, to make a list of all the people who we have harmed and to become willing to make amends to them and then to have sense enough to not rush headlong into that process but to make direct amends only to such people at such time where to do so would not injure them or yourself. I'm very careful when I'm talking about the world of the 12 steps to not give you a little overview and then you rush headlong into doing this. This is stuff that needs to be done in that community. There are ways to do it. There are sponsors to be had. I know people who've walked through these steps and it's taken them three years, Lee, months they spend on one step. Sometimes the amends we can make can be like running our finger down our throat and we vomit up and relieve ourselves, and we leave feeling better and the person we just vomited on doesn't know what to do with the vomit all over them. You have to be careful making amends, there's a way to do it. But to continue to take personal inventory and when we're wrong, promptly admit it. And to seek through prayer and meditation to improve our contact with God as we understand God. And to pray for knowledge and power to carry his will out. And having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, to try to carry this message to people everywhere. And to practice these principles in all our affairs. What's a life look like? Well, I dreamed about this the other day, and when I dream about a biblical story, I generally know it's for me, and I generally know that I should probably talk about it to you. But I dreamed about a guy named Jacob. 
he was born a twin and the scripture says that even in his mother's womb he was a striver he was a type A he was in scripture language a heel grabber when his older brother who was born only seconds before him was being born as Esau breached his mother's womb and came into the world Jacob grabbed him and pulled him the scripture said back into the womb fanciful yes but the point is brilliant all of his life he was a striver he was an achiever he was a type A in the Enneagram he would have probably been a one or a three or an eight <clears throat> One day, the Bible says that this golden child faced a moral decision. His brother that is cast as scripture to be a little less refined, a little more thick, and maybe not as polished, but just a good, bumbling, stumbling, faithful kind of guy. His brother Esau, who was a woodsman, had come in from the woods, and as he came in from the woods, uh, his journey had been so long that he was famished literally he was starving and in his weakness and despair he reached out to Jacob and told him that he was starving and could Jacob help him at all and Jacob took advantage of that moment and Chris he looked at Esau and said I'll, I'll help you but you have gotta give me your birthright I don't want to take 10 minutes to describe to you what a birthright was. It meant that the eldest boy, it was a patriarchal, even misogynistic society, women had really little place, but the oldest boy, no matter how many boys there was, the oldest boy got a double portion. So if there were 10 sons, then you divided the father's estate up into 11 pieces and the oldest got two of the pieces. But more than just physical property, birthright within their economy was a spiritual commodity. So the insidious thing about what Jacob was going after, the insidious thing was it was a good thing. It was a spiritual commodity. It was one of those insidious things that Pharisees and religious people go after instead of drugs and sex and rock and roll as we used to call them. And he justified in his mind that this was a spiritual commodity, it was a good thing, and he told his brother, I'll give you a bowl of porridge, you've got to give me the birthright. And in this desperate moment, Jacob took advantage. He commoditized. It looked altruistic. It looked like he was philanthropically giving his... There is, a, there is the capacity to feed the hungry and do it from an insidious place. There is a capacity to give to people in such a way that you are using them and making them utilitarian to the end of scratching an itch in your own soul. And that's what happened to Jacob. On, on the surface, he was technically clean. He fed a hungry brother. On the surface, he was technically clean. He got a birthright out of it, which is a spiritual commodity. But underneath, he was wrong. He was desperately wrong. But he was a golden child. And he had a mother, because golden childs always have, and this is the insidious thing about all of our sins, we have these communities, these economies that will protect us in our unhealth. We set it up that way. Sometimes life sets it up that way. And when Esau got his belly full, realized what had happened, he went to his father, Isaac, and he told him, and he was irate, and his father was irate, and they went to find Jacob, and his mother covered for him, got him up, protected him, and she did him no favor protecting him, and she got him out, and he went to the north country, a place called Padan Aram, where his uncle Laban lived, and life was better. He married... Uh, two sisters, and as Frederick Beekner said, it is, it is highly unadvisable to be married to two women simultaneously, especially if they happen to be sisters. And that was his case. Married two sisters and had a bunch of kids and was very successful. Coming down the home stretch here. 20 years of raging success, but the reality is 
there is no present or future success that can that can undo the past failure. There is no new setting that exonerates us from unfinished business in our past. And one day in this highly successful edited life, 20 years in, guess what happened? Laban, his uncle, began to cheat him. It's called by Christians sowing and reaping. It's called by our Eastern friends karma. It's called by the irreligious what goes around comes around and Don it's just one of the ways the universe works and actually it's not punishment it is a gift because Laban began to cheat him for months and even years Jacob fought the injustice of Laban's cheating to no effect Jacob unwittingly now was the prone and vulnerable cheated one and like the one he had cheated Lee he could do nothing about it and one day Steve he was in a big argument with Laban saying you're unfair you're cheating me you're taking advantage of me I'm your nephew and something about that conversation was a mirror and the finger that was pointing finally had enough soul to see the fingers pointing back and Jacob's heart began to break a space to repent because it can't happen on a dime and Jacob put his hands down and looked at Laban and essentially said oh my God this is not about you and this is not about Padan Aram and livestock and business. And he looked at that entire situation and he said to himself, this is about Esau. This is unresolved, unfinished business that I have been trying to run from for 20 years. And Jacob looked at Laban and said, I got to go home. And he packed up his kids and shut down his successful life, looked at Laban and said, no harm, no foul. Keep it. And he turned his face toward home and a brother that he had hurt 20 years before left unresolved. And he said, I don't know how this is going to go, but I don't have a choice. And with 10 kids and two wives and a whole bevy of people in tow, as he approached home, like the prodigal coming home, not all stories are as clean as the prodigals where you come home and the father runs out and hugs you. Sometimes there's complexity, there's cleanup. The amends process is not always clean. There's only so much that Jesus can do to the eyes you see, the beauty of that story is Jesus touches our eyes. Jesus takes his own substance. Jesus makes the mud that we have, that we see through. And then Jesus says, okay, but you're going to have to go do the cleanup now. See? Jesus touches you with the mud. He puts it right in front of you where all you can see is the mud. And he says, but if you want to partner with me in this, you got to clean up your own mud. So go wash in the pool. See? Isn't that lovely how scripture reads? And Jacob's almost home and he's rehearsing. Oh, it's, it's amazing how we feel like victims only to realize we're the victimizer. That's the deal. None of us are getting the short end of the stick. To some degree, life is always a mirror telling us, look at yourself here. As we say in the 12-step world, if you spot it, you got it. If it really bugs you and others, 
Well, as he gets almost home, one of his servants comes running out to him and he says, please, Esau's coming with 300 people. Now listen, I don't have time to defend this, but you never traveled in the Semitic world with 300 men unless you were going to make war. It's the only reason. There is no other reason besides migration and war to go with 300 men. Esau heard Jacob was coming and 20 years of bitterness and pain said, I'm going to get you. I've been waiting on this day. I don't know how to tell you how many nights I rolled over on that cold bed and thought to myself, if I ever, and I had to hear of your success, I had to listen to how good you were doing in the Padaner. You didn't even need my birthright. You've got more cattle in Padaner Ram than the birthright could have ever. And Esau got 300 men loaded with bitterness around him and said, I am going to get me some Jacob. And when Jacob heard those 300 men were coming, the manipulator, the deceiver, the manager didn't go into full bore work. He simply said, that's what got me into all of this and it ain't going to get me out. It's time for me to face whatever I have to face with Esau. And he went back and he made all of his kids and his wives count one, two, one, two, and he put the ones on one side of the river and the two's on the other side of the river, and that night he tucked them into bed, looked his children in the eye, and knew that when Esau got there, the best possible strategy was to have the camp divided and maybe half of his children would live. Steve, it's a hard thing for all of us when you have to face down your past. You can only run so long. You say, what part do we play in this? The part we play is to take our mud to the river, to take our mud to the pool and to be willing to cleanse ourselves, because there's only so much even Jesus can do for us. He tucked him in and the Bible said he went down to the creek bank and he collapsed. God, I've heard this so many times. He said to himself, he said to God, please, it's me. Don't make my kids pay for this. Please, it's me. Nobody should have to pay besides me. And he started wrestling, and he wrestled with himself, because that's the only person he really needed to wrestle with, until the Bible said in his wrestling, an angel of the Lord's presence came. The old rabbis earlier than Jesus said that all of us have a guardian angel who's actually a very perfect doppelganger of us. Our guardian angel looks exactly like us, which was an early religious way of saying we all wrestle with the better angels of our nature and the worse angels of our nature. And the angel of the Lord's presence very well may be you. It very well may be that divided ego and self. And as he wrestled, the Bible said, finally somewhere in the night that man had so changed, imploring God, telling God, I'll face what I have to face, please protect my family, that in the early hours of the morning, Jacob was able to look past the fight, and Lee, he looked, and the one who was wrestling with him was God. <laughs> Surprise, Jacob, your worst enemy is not Esau. Your greatest fight's not the devil. Your greatest fight's going to be with God. Because God will never be satisfied to leave you where you are. God will never be satisfied when everybody else lets go. God will be there. Because your soul has an agenda and God never gives up on it. In the early hours, God caressed his face and said to him, You are not who you used to be. I will no longer call you Jacob, deceiver, I will call you Israel, for you have prevailed with God and man, specifically the man who is yourself. And God did not change him from Jacob to Israel, God simply acknowledged the change that life and 20 years of running and the willingness to face down, the willingness to have integrity for the first time in his life, God looked at him and God said, you are a changed man. 
The Bible said as he began to untangle himself from the arms of God, that God hit him on the hip and he screamed. And he found, it is true, in spiritual awakening, caresses and dislocations often come in the same chapter of life. Pain and blessing get weaved together in such a way that the caress and the name change and the acknowledgement comes with some pain point that you drag the rest of your life that you feel every time the barometric pressure gets up and it's not a punishment and it's not a mockery it is a gift of pain that reminds you of where the change happened and when nobody can see it you can feel it and as he drug himself back across his children were still alive and he gathered them up and he went out to meet Esau and the story ends as he sees Esau and Esau sees him 300 men are ready to kill him his past is finally here and he puts his hands behind his back and says I'm willing and Esau runs toward him and the dust bowl in the sky of those 300 men follow him and Jacob puts his children behind him and braces for the blow and the Bible said that as Esau came I know in my heart ready to kill him that Esau did not see Jacob he saw Israel and when Esau saw Israel he dropped his weapons and as Jacob winced the old brother fell on him and Jacob beneath the beams of love knew like the hurting dog that he was soon to be taken out but instead he felt the warm tears of his brother on his face and all his brother could say was, who are you? Who is this one named Israel? And as Jacob received his forgiveness and his amends, as the dirt was washed away from his eyes and his soul, as they bathed themselves in the mutual tears of forgiveness and repentance, Jacob pressed back from his brother and held that one whom he had harmed and said, your face is as the face of God to me. Do you want to be well? Do you believe you can be well? What part do you play in getting and staying well? Show up, be willing, be humble. Do not self-loathe, have compassion because it is never ever too late for our Jacob to become Israel and it is never ever ever too late for the refiner's hand to touch your soul in such a way that even those you have harmed will see it true and if they don't their soul has an agenda too. take care of your side of the fence and so brothers and sisters I just wanted to tell you today we are not victims we have power and we can stand up today and we can get better and it is our responsibility to take the work of Jesus on our eyes and to do the washing at the pool of grace can you say amen, amen. let's pray together Lord thank you for this good series and this good time and for helping us reflect on this cycle called life we offer our hearts and our lives to you today and we are extremely grateful for the mirror of community and thank you that we are all becoming Israel <laughs> thank you that our word for that is Christ conforming us into the image of your son <laughs> thank you for this soul-making universe we embrace it today. Give us strength to do our work. We pray in Christ's name. In Christ-making name. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. Shelly, tell them. Well, I'd like for you to stay up here for me. So we heard there's a special day tomorrow, and it's your birthday. So we're going to sing to you. How do you feel about that? 41, 42, what are you going to be tomorrow? Uh, I can't remember. Why don't you guys stand with me as we sing happy birthday.
Happy birthday to So today we are going to be going to lunch at Famous Dave's. We hope that you can all join us there. Have a great day.